like to do before we uh, get into what we'll cover tonight, I think we'll finish Exodus and probably get through the first ten of Leviticus, you know, in the, in the way that we'll do it. And uh, this here now, do any of, Jack, do they still send this to you? What is it? used to be the American, the National Federation of Decency, mm -hmm. and now they call themselves the, uh, what is it, American Family Association. Are you familiar with it? Or we used it one time, we had subscribed for the entire congregational brain and then just didn't renew it. But uh, the man that puts it out, or that's the editor of it, Donald Wildman, he used to be a minister within the United Methodist Church. And I guess, uh, you know, he just felt that he couldn't do enough from within that organization so far as getting involved and fighting a lot of things that's going on in the world, like pornography and things like that, you know, primarily pornography, he zeroed in on. And so anyway, he founded the National Federation of Decency, and it's an interdenominational type thing. And what they do, they have already been responsible for getting pornography taken out of 7-Eleven and a number of different places like that. They've been in the newspaper several times. And so anyway, now they refer to themselves as the American Family Association. But on their latest uh, article, uh, what I'd like to do, we had talked on this before too, Jack, is I'd like to get a new list and, you know, put someone, put it on there, put people's names on it that would actually do something. In other words, they, when they tell you some things that's going on, they give you the addresses and all the places that you can contact and everything. And just like, for example, one of the things I told Tim on this, he already knew, they have, uh, they're boycotting the Holiday Inns. And, uh, you know, the uh, Josh McDowell and a number of people are behind it and all. But the Holiday Inns, for example, are one of the biggest uh, sellers of pornography in the country. That in addition to the regular TV, you, you can have pornographic material that's just real rank and it's, you know, it's been there for some time. And so what they do, they just encourage a boycotting of things like that until they go ahead and get that out, out of there. All right, now this, uh, one, what I was going to really done tonight to give you an idea of some of the stuff that's going on. This was uh, a movie uh, that's supposed to be released in October uh, called The Last Temptation of Christ. And it's uh, based on a book by the same name. And he's got excerpts from some of the script here. Let's see. Page, um, okay, uh, the movie's based on the book, The Last Temptation of Christ, it gives the name of the individual that wrote it. Okay, now here, some, some from the script. The script has Jesus saying to Mary Magdalene, I've done a lot of wrong things, I'm going to the desert to be cleansed. The worst thing I've done is to you, forgive me. Later, talking to Judas, Jesus begs Judas to betray him. When Judas refuses, Jesus said, You must, don't abandon me now. If you had to betray your master, Judas asked, Would you do it? Jesus answers, No, I do not think I would be able. That's why God pitied me and gave me the easier task, to be crucified. Jesus tells a group of poor and sick who ask him for healing, Get away, you sicken me. You're selfish and full of hate. God won't help you. The story has Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene. His guardian angel wants to watch while Jesus and Mary Magdalene engage in sex. According to the script, the guardian angel says to Jesus, it's me, I wonder if I could just watch. And then it says, the couple engage in sex. The angel says, I'm lonely too. Jesus laughs and responds, yeah, go ahead and watch. In another conversation, Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, 
Now I know a woman is God's greatest work, and I worship you. God sleeps between your legs. After Mary Magdalene is killed, Jesus moves with Mary and Martha, moves in with Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, and he has children with both them. Only a brief description at the very end identifies his relationships with Mary Magdalene, Mary and Martha as a dream. And then he goes ahead with some more about the script. This is due out in October. And what they had asked them to do, they had promised this Wildman and Josh McDowell, a number of them, that if they would not fight them while they was in the, before, in the process of making the movie, they would give them the opportunity to review it and everything before it was out. And they were supposed to review it in June. But then they didn't allow them to review it in June, but yet they still kept their opening date in October. And then they told them the earliest they could review the actual movie would be in uh, July or August. We'll see what they know then. That's not enough time to muster any resistance against it, you know, before it actually comes out or anything like that. And so, anyway, it's put out by Universal Studios. Well, what they'll do, see, they give the address and all of Universal Studios and the man the right to, and they encourage as many as will to write to them and tell them, uh, you know, just what you think of it. And although they have, you know, you can do, like people sometimes do these chain letters where a lot of people sign their name and all, those really don't have the value of just individuals writing in. And even the form letters don't have the value because they know you get a lot of people to sign or anything like that. When somebody writes something, they know they're concerned. And they actually have a, a formula worked out where they know that, that uh, for every one person that will write, there had to be X amount of people that, that were disturbed but didn't write, you know, so that you're worth more. In other words, when you write, you're really worth more than one letter because they know that there's a number that were disturbed but just didn't go to trouble to write, Tim. At Holiday Inn, if Christians had just stayed there just writing a complaint, for every complaint each Holiday Inn gets, they lose, like, uh, something on their superior rating. you got to have only the average is 3.7 complaints per 1,000 people that stay there. And see, like Holiday Inn Cookville, in its busiest times, you're talking about like a thousand people are going to stay there in a whole week. So if you just have four people that come through and complain about something like that, you know, they'll lose their superior rating. Yeah, that's If, if that good. comes through uh, on a regular basis, just four in a week. In other words, if you takes. stay the Holiday Inn and you see that it Well, they got a little card there. Is all, you know, that's all you got to do is take that little card, that comment card, and complain and say what it's about. See, I mean, they're sitting here writing letters, but Holiday Inn doesn't see that as, as their, uh, right. as the people support, as the it's people that come and do business there, with yeah. them. Because nobody's filling out the complaint cards. But like the one in Cookville had, uh, it wasn't on that, it's just about everything. You know, the complaint cards cover everything. But the, the one in Cookville had, you know, more complaints. It had like, it always been way below average. And uh, it wound up having the average number of complaints. And that's what caused it to lose its superior rating for this year. you got to be in the top for 10% to get it. Yeah, you got to be in the top 10% of Holiday Inns to get it. And they had it two years in a row, and then they lost it, and it's because they had an average number of complaints. Right. So that's only uh, 3.7 per, per thousand. All right, so the effective thing to do then, be anytime you stated one, is write in and tell them that you were shocked to find out that Holiday Inn did Yeah, that that's, what, that's what they should, yeah. you know. And then they know that it's a customer writing. Because see, every single Holiday Inn don't. Most well, of them like do. like us. We stay, and I remember once we did before all Well, we time. don't have anything. And it would be good to write hardcore. and say, we have stayed right. in a number of Holiday Inns before, yeah. but we will not. As long but as one thing that he said would be real effective is anytime you stay to fill out their complaint 
things. See, I found right. out that Cookville's movies isn't as bad, aren't as bad as most of them. They just have late at night. They'll have a couple of worse ones. You'll come on, and they don't have anything as far as the you know, like Playboy or Penthouse or anything like that up the front counter. They don't have any any. Yeah. They don't sell any. Now like this, like this movie, what I'm gonna do is is just write them and tell them that uh, if that is released, that I would never view again anything that Universal Studios had a part in putting out and I'll do everything I can vocally and by writing to to make it known you know that uh, about that kind of thing I think if they had enough people that individually would just tell them that you know that you would never view anything that they had anything to do with at all and uh, see they, they they've stopped several things you know they were coming out with the garbage pail mm -hmm. kids on TV and of course you're familiar with that well see they stopped that this was the organization that stopped it and got enough write-ins and all well, now they show some of the things that's being done. Another thing they've got in here. Here's a cartoon. This was a, a Mighty, Mouse, Mighty Mouse cartoon. It was on uh, April the 23rd, Saturday morning. And it pictures Mighty Mouse reeled down in the dumps. You know, and he's just real distressed. And then he reaches in and gets some something and snorts it. You know, and it shows the aroma going up through his nose and all. And all of a sudden, he's vibrant and full of life and and hepped and ready to go and all. And of course everybody caught it as cocaine. And so they got onto him on that. Well then they said, oh, he was smelling flowers or something like that. But that was nonsense, so they, they went nonsense. They went and had uh, some people that didn't, hadn't even heard about the controversy yes. to like, they had several psychologists and all, just to view it and give their opinion of what it was. And just immediately they said that was cocaine, you know, that, that he was snorting. Well, then the, the person that is doing the cartoon series is somebody that has already been in, involved in pornography. And see, they've got several people. In the cartoon. Oh, yeah. One lady that's involved has boasted that you can get more uh, of this kind of thing across with the kids than you can on prime time. Because see, most of the time, adults are not watching that. And see, that's what he points out, that adults just let their kids watch that, and they're not going to sit there and watch those cartoons or anything, and they're throwing all those kinds of things in. All right, now, another thing they point out, see, they, they keep up with the, the type of things that's on TV. It points out that uh, the traditional family is just not represented in a positive way at all. And any time that Christianity is representative, it's, it's always in a negative way. And that uh, there's only three programs on all of TV where you have a traditional family. That's uh, Cosby and Family Ties and one other. The only three programs that say where you have a traditional family, whereas that used to be the dominant type thing. Okay. On the other programs, it named a number of them where homosexuals have been uh, one of the one of the things on there. And then there's one that just started called Heartbeat. That's about two lesbians, and it it gives you the background on what they're doing and said that that uh, number one, every single solitary time that a homosexual or a lesbian is dealt with in a script, it's always in a positive manner. And it said, like these two lesbians, that what they were doing, it's already a planned thing. You give people a little bit at a time, and it said they've already, you know, it quotes the people that are involved in the write-up on it, and that are, I mean, doing writing the story itself. And it said, first, they, they convey these two lesbians as warm, considerate, loving, peaceful-type people. Then the only relationship you actually see is just touch, just a casual touch and everything. But then they said, eventually the goal is to get into the steamy sex scenes with two lesbians. And, and then they use as an example, they said in the traditional family, that they started out with just the touch, 
And even when they had a bedroom scene, you know, they was in different beds and things like that. And now we've come up to the steamy sex. And they pointed out that, that you, if you just went from nothing to where you want to take them, the people won't accept it. But if you gradually give them a little bit, you synthesize them to it, and they reach the point where they will. And that's the whole thing, he says, between the homosexual thing and the lesbian. But I mean, there is a, a, just a concerted effort to portray the traditional Judeo-Christian ethics in a negative way, and then to portray the other in a positive way. And I mean, an effort to even change the society itself. Another thing they pointed out is that, that uh, in surveys that have been taken of people that uh, write the scripts for the movies, and everybody that's in the, new, in the media, I mean the newscasters and all, that they tend to be far more liberal and way out in their thinking than the average American. And, and then also they do, they do a lot of good things with violence in showing how that they do not represent the real world. For example, a popular uh, detective thing is Miami Vice. Uh, you know, I guess it comes on, I don't even know, I've never seen the thing myself, but anyway, I've heard them talk about it. But anyway, they said that in showing how unreal it is and how violent, it said over uh, an 18 weeks, that's, that's just slightly more than one-third of the year, that the two main characters on Miami Vice kill more people than the entire Miami police force kills in one year. And they said that's true, you know, with all these detective things, that what they portray is just an unreal world. There's, there's much more killing, much more fighting, much more raping, much more sex than really goes on in the real world. And in other words, even when it comes to the marriage situation, you know, most of the things they portray are uh, the single parent family and etc. You know, but see, the fact remains that that so far as the real world is concerned, and of course, we're going more that way, and they're leading the way. The vast majority of our population basically follows the Judeo-Christian philosophy of life. That's still the dominant, in, in, and the majority of our marriages are until death do you part. And see, even when they say that 50% uh, wind up in divorce, no, it's, in some ways it's not as bad as it sounds, even though it's bad, because you have some sane people that get married over and over and over again. But I'm saying, well more, I forget the exact, but it's about, I believe it's about 75%. About 75, if you just deal with people, and forget about these people get married six or seven or five times, no, about 75% of our population, when they marry, it's until death do they part. And so, and then about two-thirds of our population still claims to believe in Jesus and believe in the Bible, and 94% of them claims to believe in God. All right, so here you've got a society where 94% believe in God, two-thirds claim belief in Jesus and in the Bible. Uh, about 75% of the marriages of the people that are married, it's actually until death do you part proposition. The, the decisions that a majority of the families make in our society are, are tied into their beliefs concerning God and the Bible. I mean, it affects their decisions about school and any, any number of things. All right, here's, that's the real America. But what is portrayed on TV is such that you would never guess that. You, you would never guess that anybody in this country ever prayed or that anybody was religious. And if a minister is portrayed or a priest or anybody that's religious, it's always uh, some tiptoe through the lily type character or somebody that's having an affair or somebody that's selling his soul to the devil in some way. It's never somebody with some integrity that would be a good example to anybody or who's actually making a sacrifice. Just like, well, for example, this, something like this thing with Jimmy Swagger. 
Jimmy Swagger and, and anybody like him would still be the exception to the rule so far as ministers go. In other words, the, the average minister makes a salary that's more comparable to the school teachers and principals than, than anything else. And the average minister works for less money than he could in another occupation. In other words, I'm saying the average minister out there is actually making a sacrifice to work in that, in that profession. So anyway, they do a good job of bringing all this out. Now, another thing he does, he had a good statement on here, uh, that the big problem is the apathy within the church, that uh, the, the church has been content to sit back and just build buildings and get all decked out in our little suits and go to church. But we're, from a standpoint of being aggressive and speaking out, we're just not doing it. And that the majority of ministers are not aggressive. In other words, the, the majority of churches that hire a minister, and this is across the board with all of them, they don't want somebody that's going to get out there and get dirty and, and, and start speaking out in a bold way and tackling homosexuality or, or the, the sexual permissiveness of our society or anything else. They want somebody that's going to come there and, and uh, visit the elderly and, and visit the, whoever they want visited and everything within the congregation and hit up the ministry within the congregation, make sure the youth get taken to all the places that they want to go to, and, and the elderly are visited, and, and preach some nice little sermons where you, you might say truthful things, but you don't step on anybody's toes. And that's generally the job that's wanted of the, the average minister there. So consequently, the, the church, except for a few individuals, is, is doing very little. And, and even our programs that make it on TV, that there's not much there. I mean, the typical religious program is is, I mean, if it's somebody denouncing sin, it's up there, it's somebody that's up there sweaty and hollering and sending people to hell, that's not going to reach educated people. Uh, we don't have anybody up there that's presenting the evidences for Christianity and reasoning in a logical way concerning morality and presenting facts and, and things like that. And so I'm just, I've said all that because I think that, that I would like to encourage as many people as I can to get involved in it and to actually write letters and just like when we do the list and all, I'd like to go ahead and uh, maybe go ahead and get started on that tonight and then uh, put some type people on it that when they receive the issue and all would be the type that would write letters, you know, and take because it takes a little bit of time to do it. But it really don't have to be long. It's better that it's just short and, and to the point. And then also, now one thing I was going to order on here, he's made six video cassettes where he deals with a lot of things like um, humanism, secular humanism, things like that. And they're about 55 minutes each. And the whole, the price for all six of them is $49. So, you know, it's strictly not, you know, it's non, non-profit entirely. And I'd like to get it. And I thought if they got back in time, that we'd show them over, you know, at the church. And then if we advertised it, and then also that could make them available to any of the other churches that want to show it, whether it's a Baptist or the Methodist up here or whoever, you know, but anybody else that would show it also, you know, get as many as they could come and... Yeah, if you told and, the Methodist that it was a Methodist preacher, you know, that, yeah. Well, Don Wildman, he's... Uh, I'd advertise it that way. That would really freak people out, you know. Well, <laughs> what I'd like to do is I'd like to get... The, the sad thing is that the Methodist, uh, the Baptist, the Church of Christ, uh, the Church of God, uh, the Nazarene Church, all your traditional groups... We have 10 times over more in common uh, than we have differences. And all of us believe in the morality. We believe in the deity of Jesus and salvation in Him. And it's a shame to let some of these other differences keep us from getting out there and fighting for what is right in the world. I mean, there's a time and a place for us to sit down 
you know, and, and talk about our differences on some of these doctrinal things. But it seems to me that out there in the world, with all that sin, that we need to be more united in standing up for the things that we, you know, know and, and believe are wrong. This comes out, I think, yeah, once a, once a month, but he's got, uh, every time, you know, it's, I think it's exceptionally good, the type of material he has in it. Okay, in uh, Exodus, we did the uh, Ten Commandments uh, last week, and we noted that the unique feature of the Ten Commandments was the first four that although the last six are true, and they deal with our relationship one with the other and all, that uh, those principles now, you'll find also in the Hammurabi Code of Law. In other words, these are moral truths that societies have figured out and recognized on their own. And then the unique feature, though, was this business of one God, and, and he was a, a spirit God, could not be recognized in any physical way, this is absolutely and totally unique to Judaism and the Christian religion. And all these unique features, when we, we talk about evidences for the inspiration of the Bible, the, there is no greater evidences than the unique features of it. Because it's just simply a matter of fact that you can show with anybody that all of us are the product of our environment so far as our thinking goes. There is no such thing as original thinking. I don't believe it is. Anytime I've ever heard anything that I thought sounded great, uh, and everything, it was because I hadn't heard it before, but the person that was saying it, or the person that was writing it, the germ for that thought came from somebody else. And then maybe it's something that evolved over a period of time. Like, for example, Darwin didn't come up with evolution. It was around before Christ. And, and that it's, it's something that evolved in it over a period of time. Uh, and the same with a lot of other things that people sometimes say or know. They're really, they're really not. And so anytime you can go back and point to something that is absolutely unique, then the question becomes, where did that thought enter that mind? Because uh, your mind can only operate on concepts, or it's just like a computer. It simply cannot think any better than concepts that are, that are put within it. And so when you read this about this, this one God, the Jews are unique. There was no people on the face of the earth that had a concept of one universal God. And they were so unique that they were thought of as atheists and branded as atheists by other people because they rejected all the other gods. When you read the concept of a spiritual God that you could not represent in any image whatsoever, is unique. There's just nothing outside of the Judeo-Christian philosophy that teaches of the spirit God itself. Another point that we made, the Sabbath day, uh, unique to Judaism. And yet it's very interesting that people all over the earth recognize a seven-day week for no mathematical reason. And, and yet it's absolutely unique to Judaism. Uh, you don't find it anywhere else, this, this respect for the Sabbath and setting aside. But yet the interesting thing, at least to me, is that everybody everywhere operates on a seven-day week. But yet the concept and the meaning behind it uh, is reserved for Judaism. Okay, uh, after the uh, commands, uh, there's some more explanation there. And in the 21st chapter, uh, one verse just I wanted to note before moving on. Uh, the command, thou shalt not kill, we noted when we looked at that, it's more accurate, thou shalt not commit murder. And here in the 12th verse, he says, anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, 
he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if he schemes and kills another, uh, take him away from my altar, put him to death. In other words, the, we have a lot going on in our society today against the death penalty. Some Christians have been persuaded that it is unchristlike or ungodly to have the death penalty. And the Bible very plainly teaches it. Uh, in, in Genesis 9 and verse 6, it says that man is created in the image of, in the image of God, and whoever shed man's blood, that by man shed his, his blood be shed, because man is made in the image of God. In other words, the thing is, man is made in God's image, and the only being in all the universe that has the right to take a human life is God. And vengeance belongs to God. The penalty of death is from God. No man has the right to, in a premeditated way, take the life of another human being. And if somebody does, then God says that he forfeits his own life in the process. All right, to show you that thinking carried right over into the New Testament, remember that, first of all, the thief on the cross, when he said to the other thief that, you know, I deserve, we deserve to be here, but not this man and all, but there's no argument that he deserved to die for his particular crime. All right, Paul, later on in the book of Acts, uh, made the statement when appearing before uh, Agrippa, Felix, and Festa. He said, if Festus, if I have done anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But, and of course, his argument was that he had done anything worthy of death, but he agreed that they had the right to take his life if he did. And then in Romans 13, Paul said the civil governments are ordained by God and that they are a minister of God for wrath to the evildoer, that they do not bear the sword in vain, that they have the right to put up laws and to exercise judgment in that area. I think it's important here that it's interesting to me that the liberal politician who actually is approaching life from an atheist point of view has been very successful in getting Christians to support him in many of those things. He really has. And one of them is the death penalty. That, uh, that many Christians have been led to believe that that's the benevolent, the merciful, the right thing to do when in reality it, it, it is contrary to what's here. And I personally, at least I believe personally, I think we've suffered in our own society as a result of not uh, having that. And we've got people, that, probably the worst example in, country, in the entire country right now is Massachusetts. And I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Governor Dukakis and the laws that they've passed there, but uh, there is no such thing as even life in prison there. That uh, after less than 10 years or out on paroles, there's been a number of killings and all that. Reader's Digest in the last month did a real good article um, on the situation in Massachusetts. He is 100% against the death penalty, and you can they have a real good article in the, in the Reader's Digest on the whole law system in Massachusetts and how lenient it is. And again, the interesting thing is that once they come out with that, in the name of mercy, they wind up getting Christian backing, but yet, although it sounds merciful, it's, it's strictly from an atheist point of view. That from the atheist point of view, there is nothing to us except heredity, and environment. And therefore, if that's the case, then how can you be responsible for anything? And that's why Clarence Darrell made the statement that uh, to people in jail that they could no more help being there than he could help being a lawyer. But an atheist gives us credit for having nothing except your environment and your genes, and therefore you cannot be responsible. That's why the atheist uh, philosophy, the philosophy of secular humanism, is not to hold individuals accountable but to try and change the environment. A good example of that is the way we're handling the AIDS. We do not hold homosexuals responsible for what's happening there. We're looking for a cure to it. Nobody's suggested yet that they should uh, 
that they should stop being homosexuals or anything of that nature. And the same is true with crime. We looked for foreign money, get them out of the ghetto, put them in different houses and everything, and then we'll, we'll change things. And all of that is, the, is from an atheist philosophical standpoint, but they've been very good at soliciting Christians to get behind it. Uh, the rest of that, in the 21st, all through the 22nd, on through these early chapters here, just simply deals with things within their law system. For example, when a man stole, they did not throw him in jail, but rather he had to repay. Uh, look at chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or sheep, slaughters it, sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four for the sheep. And then, though, if he, if he stole something but did not slaughter the animal, it says, uh, come on down to verse 4, if the stolen animal is found alive and in his possession, whether ox or donkey, he must pay back double. And then they go on to say that if the man steals something and then he's used it and he can't, he, he can't pay back, much less double. Well, then he has to, he becomes the slave of the other person. He has to sell himself as a slave for a period of time in order to pay back. In other words, if he stole an ox, however many days wages it would take to pay for an ox, then he would have to work to double that, and that's the way that he paid. In other words, that a policy of using criminals like thieves to work, uh, whether it's cleaning up the roads or whatever, uh, while they're in jail, the principle would be the same as what you have right here, uh, that they were actually made to pay back their offense to somebody else. Did we cover this some, the last time that you all were here? We covered the Ten Commandments. Yeah, we covered I think it's interesting, too, verse 29, where he talks about if the bull had the habit of boring. Right now, you in the 22nd chapter? 21st. Okay. Verse 29. Right. It says, um, if a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death. And then he goes on, verse 29, if, however, the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it pinned up and it kills a man or a woman, the bull must be stoned and the owner also must be put to death. Yeah. They make a difference there. If, if, if your bull does not have a past history, then you just take care of the animal. But if it has a, back, a past history, then the owner was held fully. Again, this thing of accountability, that uh, we know the reputation of a pit bull, and yet we still don't hold people that own pit bulls as fully accountable. I mean, that as far as their, their person and whatnot. Uh, the same thing with people that drink and drive, we don't hold them fully accountable. And through here, people were never accountable for unwillful ignorance in any sense, and even accidental killing. But anything that they could know what they were doing and all, they were held fully accountable for it. So they'd be like comparable to somebody that had a pit bull or something like that? I think so. That, uh, that you, everybody knows the reputation of them. They know that they have been bred specifically to fight. I mean, that's the, everything about them was, was, was bred to fight. You know, something as I read through here too that caught my attention. The death penalty, like um, obviously for murder and for um, kidnapping, was the death penalty. Rape. Rape. And also anybody that curses his mother or father, the death penalty. Yeah. Well, it was a prolonged thing. In Deuteronomy 21, if a, if a guy had reached the point where he just was totally out of control, and then the, the parents were to bring him before the elders, 
and they would investigate it, and, and his life was to be taken. But it was more than, I mean, the, it was more than just a one-time type of thing. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Deuteronomy. Jump, talk, complete justice, weren't they? Take my Here it is. Deuteronomy 21 and verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious, stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother, will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the gate. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. Notice now you're not talking about a little kid. He is, he is profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You shall purge evil from among you, and all Israel will hear of it and be afraid. But it wasn't a kid there. that They had extended families. And so you've got a full-grown man, but yet the son of them, and, and is just totally rebellious and not responsive at all. And in their system with the extended family, the oldest male was the father. He was the, he was the patriarch, the head of the family. Mm. You know, it's interesting, on some of this, they go through that like, uh, it would seem strict in comparison to what we're used to, but yet you, I would guess that you would have far fewer crimes committed and far fewer things done and you look at our society, and on the one hand, when they plead for uh, being lenient, the end result is more crimes committed, I think, in many ways, that if, you, if there were some stricter things that were enforced, uh, we might find, even on drunken driving, I, I, st I think we still play with it. Uh, that, uh, that if you knew that, if, if, that your license automatically, the first time that you were going to lose your license, for at least a year, and you were going to be fined extremely stiff, uh, I think you'd be much more careful than, than even just two days in jail if you knew that it was automatically losing it, losing it for a year. Any, okay, in the, the 23rd chapter, uh, he's getting them ready to go into the land of Canaan. We run into a little bit about God's providential care there as they get ready to go in. And let's see, uh, Mark, would you read that beginning in verse 20 uh, through 23, 20 through 23. <clears throat> see, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do what I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Okay, notice two times the statement there that he's sending this angel, and his angel would go ahead. Um, we'll come later on, we'll run into a situation where Israel went into a battle against their enemy that, that the hailstones kill more of the enemy than the actual Israelite uh, army. Uh, we see that when <coughs> Sennacherib took the Assyrian army and encompassed Jerusalem, when Hezekiah was king, 
that an angel of the Lord smote his army and 185,000 died. And we go back and read the record of the Assyrian historian who recorded how that uh, uh, Sennacherib was boasting that he had Hezekiah pinned up like a bird in a cage. And then the Assyrian historian records that a plague hit his army, 185,000 died, and then he went back and was killed by his own sons. All the way, remember, it was angels that held the mouths of the lion shut when Daniel was thrown in. It was an angel that preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so all the way through, God's providential care was exerted through angels. When we come into the New Testament, Jesus made it clear that, that we have angels that are before God that are concerned about us. And he even made the statement concerning his own life that he could call on 12 legions of angels if he so desired. Uh, in Acts 12, when Herod was addressing the people, and they were claiming that he was a god and, and heaping all kinds of divine praise on him. Uh, the Bible said the angel of the Lord smote him and he became violently ill and died a violent death. Josephus records it as a Jewish historian. He describes in exact detail, much more detail than we have in Acts, and said that while Herod was addressing the people that he became violently ill and the worms literally ate his bowels out over a period of, of five days time. And so all the way through in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, we are told as Christians that, that uh, angels are ministering spirits for those of us that will inherit salvation. Uh, David's confidence came from his belief that the angels of God encompassed around those that walk with God. Uh, Psalms 34, Psalms 91, the entire psalm revolves around God's providential care and how that that providential care is exerted through the angels. In 2 Kings 6 and 17, we have uh, the Syrian army that is coming around the city where the prophet of God is, and the prophet is not scared in the slightest, his servant is. And then the prophet makes the comment that's recorded in uh, 6 and 17, said, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. He wanted to know why the prophet wasn't scared either. And God allowed the eyes to be opened so he could see in the spiritual realm, and the entire Syrian army was encompassed by a host of angels. And so, all the way through, there was that teaching of the angels and ministering spirits, God's tools that he uses in the realm of salvation. This is brought forth in the New Testament in the same way. I think uh, the angels, at least for me, has been one of the most interesting studies uh, made in the Bible. I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. That uh, I think a lot of times that, uh, uh, in fact, one thing Barb and I came to the conclusion some time back that when we would study about the Holy Spirit and and try to show that from the scriptures that you know that there were certain individuals guided by the Holy Spirit and the miracles uh, confirmed that and everything, and we found out that there are those that believe they have the Holy Spirit that's leading them around separate apart from information. It's like you kick God out of the picture you know, as far as doing anything and all. And so we reversed, and what we started to do is to study the angels before studying that, you know, and that, that I think a lot of things are tribute to the Holy Spirit in some way, that really that is the realm of the angels themselves. And just like you and I could only speculate as to how many times your life may have already been spared because of an angel, or how many times it will be in the future, or how many other things might be different if it were not for the intervention of angels in the realm of providence itself. But anyway, that they were told that his angel would go before them, and I think 
thinking along that same concept of God's providential care, the promises that God makes to us, like, Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. Ask, and ye shall receive. Everyone that seeks finds. Everyone that knocks, it would be open. There is no way he can make those statements if life is just simply a matter of chance. It just, just simply couldn't be. And the same with prayer. We're, we're told to pray and that God hears our prayer. No, but the question is, how does God answer? You know, we know he doesn't, he doesn't interfere with anybody's free will or their, or their free choice. And all through there, it, all the time it's, it's talking about what we call God's providential care. The Bible speaks in terms of, of God's angels and the fact that they are ministering spirits for those that will inherit salvation. Uh, another statement like in Romans uh, 8 and verse 28, God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him. And so the picture all the way through the Old and New Testament is God who perfectly knows our heart and he knows those that are hungering and thirsting after righteousness who are seeking after truth. And he providentially, with the tool of angels, works together on their behalf. Anybody with any uh, comment on any of that in those chapters there? Okay, the beginning now in the 24th chapter, you have him giving information about the tabernacle, the ark. In other words, basically what he's doing now is setting up their worship under the law of Moses. And so he tells them about the ark. Remember the ark of the covenant contained the Ten Commandments. Uh, it had a pot of manna uh, to remind them when God took care of them all those years. Uh, later on, Aaron's rod that budded will be put in there. And then on top of that is a mercy seat, uh, symbolizing that God's law would be tempered with mercy. That word mercy, uh, from that word comes the, the Greek word that we translate propitiation. And so in the New Testament, when Paul had reference to Christ being a propitiation for our sins, to the Jewish mind, he would go back to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the symbolic of the fact that there was a propitiation or a peace offering for, for the sins, even though we did not perfectly keep the law. In all of this, the lampstand, the table, the tabernacle, the priest, everything about that worship was in some way symbolic of spiritual things in the New Testament. The high priest was symbolic of Christ, and the Hebrew writer were referred to Jesus as our high priest. The difference between a priest and a prophet, a prophet was a spokesman from God to man. The priest ministered on behalf of man to God. And so the priest's job was to offer sacrifices and to minister to God on behalf of the people. The prophet spoke from God to the people. Jesus would be prophet and priest. And the high priest who would go behind the veil uh, in the temple, the, the veil was there, you had the ark, and then you had the veil, and then you had the people. And that veil symbolized that man was separated from God because of his sin. And remember when Jesus was crucified, it mentions that the veil was split, symbolizing now that there was an entrance uh, into the presence of God. Well, all through here, it describes the priesthood, uh, the way the worship was set up. Uh, the priest, for example, had to be spotlessly clean. Uh, he bathed and washed 
and, and everything about him had to be near perfect. He couldn't have any blemishes. He couldn't have a broken bone. He could only marry a virgin. And again, in a physical way, it was symbolizing the holiness of God, and, and dirt was used to represent sin and cleanliness, the washing of sin. And so there was all these baptisms or washings of every, they, everything they touched. They washed and were spotlessly clean, uh, and then they went into the presence of God that way. But I'm saying that everything in the Jewish worship, in a physical way, was symbolic of some spiritual truth. Uh, the temple that will eventually come, the tabernacle that they had then, later on Paul will refer to the church as the temple of God. Uh, our bodies are referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit, the tabernacle of God. All right, what the Old Testament does, it, you cannot speak without a vocabulary. And words are simply symbols of thought. You cannot deal with the abstract without the concrete experience being in the mind. That's why, for example, when we start teaching math in school with little kids, when we talk about fractions, we get that pie up there and we divide it and all. And we have all these manipulatives because we found that you cannot introduce an abstract symbol until you first have a concrete experience that that child can then take on. In fact, uh, uh, psychologists say we reach about 11 or 12 years of age before we can even reason in the abstract because we just haven't had enough concrete experiences and all. And so what the Old Testament does it's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, like Paul said in Galatians. It's a schoolmaster in many ways. One of the things it does, it gives the writers of the New Testament a vocabulary. And it has some developed concepts. And there are all kinds of meaningful things in the New Testament that would have no meaning except for that vocabulary that's developed from the Law of Moses. In other words, when we read that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we read that we are uh, to fully appreciate what is being said, we have to be knowledgeable of the actual physical thing back here. The sacrifice, when they offer that perfect lamb without blemish, well then you can see that when John the Baptist announced to the disciples, here's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And again, all of this would derive its meaning from what was started over there. Let's see now, let's see if there's any more in uh, any particular thing. Is there anything uh, particular throughout the remainder now of Exodus, any, if, if there's any verse that anybody wants to hit or anything, it all, it all deals with that. A lot of interesting stuff you just can't hit it all. Well, we're doing this with the assumption. That's why that on this, you know, we're just going to operate with the assumption that everybody reads it, mm -hmm. and then we just hit the overall view and hit the meaning so that we can cover the entire, the entire Bible. They really, they really get a, there's a lot of detail in all this. It's just when I went through this, it was just amazing to me. You know, you know it's interesting is, too on the detail, Mark. Uh, God knows how to give detail when He wants to. Uh, I've changed my thinking a lot over the years, as opposed to the way I was initially taught. No, but. I honestly believe that, that as fundamentalist Christians, we have totally misrepresented the New Testament. I don't believe the New Testament is, is written as a law of Moses. Uh, you try to think of anything where we're given that kind of detail and all. I mean, God knows how to give it. It's, uh, the whole principle is, is the principle of love and faith. And, and Paul answers specific problems using these principles of love and faith uh, throughout. 
But I really don't know of anything that is hit in a legalistic way. They just think, for example, here you are as a Jew. Do you have any problem knowing what day of the week is the holy day? Do you have any problem knowing exactly how to keep that day? When you go to, do you have any problem at all determining how much you're supposed to give as a minimum? Everything's spelled out. If you're a priest, do, I mean, do you have any problem knowing where your preachers are going to come from? You see the Levitical priesthood. Do you have any problem knowing when you're too young to, to be a public teacher? 30 years of age. All of it was spelled out. Okay, now, come to the New Testament, and uh, we uh, meet every first day of the week. There is one casual verse in the entire New Testament where Christians come together on the first day of the week and, and break bread. I believe that breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper and all. But I'm saying that, that there's one verse, and uh, there, there's no command, do this on the first day of the week, or do it anything. The, in other words, I'm saying that whether the early church partook of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week because of a specific command, if that was the case, they were, it wasn't written down. Or it was just simply the expedient thing to do in their mind because Christ was crucified and he raised on the first day of the week. And I'm saying that, that uh, they just do it. And, and, and that's, that's it. And the same thing about their assemblies. How many times did they assemble? You know, you just read about them going house to house and going to the synagogue and out at the riverside and everything like that, and that they were told to assemble and things like that. But there is, there's just not the legal framework that we want to give it a, a lot of times. And the same thing with uh, a whole lot of the other things concerning the organization, the, the service, and things of this nature. The, there was this principle of love and the fact that everything they did was to be motivated by love and by their, their faith in Jesus, and they were spreading the good news of salvation in Him. But the emphasis was all on the spiritual and the changing of the inner person and, and things of that nature. But you, I think that's a good observation. When you read that, every little detail spelled out. Uh, it's just not written. The New Testament's not written that way. And, it, and so I know I've looked at it and thought, well, some of these things that we've argued about and everything, why do we argue about it? It's because it's not so clear. You know, you don't argue about uh, uh, something where you have a plain command, you know, and everything like that. We get in arguments over things where, where through our inferences we have come up with a statement, you know. And I think we have to be careful that we don't use our inferences and make dogmatic commands that, you know, maybe, maybe, or just maybe are not so. Well, why, why do you think that there's that difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament? Uh, First of all, Israel was a theocracy. The, it was the law of the land itself. It was, it was a theocracy. And uh, these concepts that they were to carry out in a literal, physical way were actually representative of spiritual truths. Every one of them was representative of spiritual truths that would eventually be fulfilled. And the most important thing would be to understand that spiritual truth. It's just like the Samaritan... And the Jew had this big argument going as whether you could only worship God in Jerusalem or you could worship him over in Samaria. And so when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, he said the time is coming and now is when neither in Jerusalem or over there, but you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, he was saying the time is coming when it, it don't matter where you worship him. As long as you worship from the heart, you know, that that was, that was what actually counted, not the specific thing itself. And I think there was a lot of things in their physical regulations that allowed... See, they didn't choose God. God chose them. 
And he had to hold them in control and use them to prepare the world for Christ. I mean, that law was there and God was going to enforce it. But in the New Testament, the message goes out on a whosoever will basis. You don't come into a covenant relation with God unless you want to. You're just not born into it. And, you, and the whole principle is one of love. And then concerning the moral commands, the assumption in the New Testament is that you already know that. And, you, and, and they're literally quoting uh, the principles that's already here. Even sometimes things that we say are unique to the New Testament are not. When Jesus said, love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from Leviticus. Uh, when he says, overcome evil with good, he's quoting from Proverbs. Uh, every single solid, when he talks about marriage, and he says, Moses permitted such and such, then he goes back and he quotes from Genesis. Uh, there's not a single new moral precept in the New Testament. It was all there. And what Jesus was doing was getting unto them for taking these physical things and keeping them to the letter. And even though they didn't, apply the moral things to their heart like justice and love and everything they got their satisfaction out of doing a few physical things right and he said you've strained it in that and swallowed a camel as a result and then he emphasized the great spiritual principles of the law itself okay in the uh, Leviticus the uh, Various sacrifices are enumerated. Uh, there's no, for our purpose, obviously, we don't need to look at all the detail because we're not going to offer that sacrifice. So all we need to look at is what were the sacrifices for. And what they were doing is, is simple. Man sinned. And then he could repent. Okay. Uh, that shows God's benevolent. He's merciful. He'll let you repent. But man needed to have it impressed on his mind that that wasn't good enough. That God was holy and he was just and he was perfect. And we just constantly were in the sinning business and we could not stand before God. And so what all of these sacrifices are pointing out is there has to be an atonement for the sins of man. That is man's repentant in and of... In other words, when uh, I steal $100 from you and I spend it and then I tell you I'm sorry, that doesn't get your $100 back. Or if I hurt somebody and I go apologize and I tell them I'm sorry, that doesn't take away the three nights sleep they lost or the two weeks sleep or whatever it may have been all the time that I hurt them. That doesn't really make atonement. It's just that I've repented and that's good. And so the sacrifices conveyed there literally has to be atonement. The reason there has to be atonement, there's no choice in the matter. Because God is perfect and he's just. And if God is perfectly just, then he, by his own nature, and I think in order to fully appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus, we have to appreciate the nature of God. That because God is perfectly just, his own nature leaves him no choice but to condemn us. I don't care how much he loves us. He's perfectly just. If, if your own son did something wrong out here, committed murder, or lied, stole, whatever it is, if you were 100% just, then you would have no choice but to deal with that in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth way. There's just no, no way out. The only way you can be merciful is to not be 100% just. But God's going to be 100% just. And so the, the mystery uh, that's, that's revealed over here, and it's going to come forth in the New Testament, is how does a just God find a way to justify an unjust man? 
And so in the sacrificial system, the Jew was having it impressed on his mind, and this is a reason that the New Testament writers will get onto him so strong for not seeing it, that it's not, you need to have an atonement for your sins. And the sacrifice was there. Well, then, when they come along in the New Testament, and, and remember Hebrews, it's written to Jewish Christians, and, and to Jews that, that were arguing with, Jewish Christians that were arguing with Jews that were trying to get them to leave, leave Christianity. Listen to his argument. He says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Well, if you were a Jew living that day, isn't that logical? You as a human being have sinned, then how could the blood of a bull and goat take away your sin? That it would take a perfect human man. And so then Paul's argument is, by one man, sin came into the world. We all have participated in that sin, from Adam all on down. Now through one perfect man, and so one man could bring death in, now through one perfect man, we could all be saved. And the atonement there. And so through this sacrificial system, God is preparing the way for Jesus, who would give himself as a sacrifice for all mankind. And the way is, way is being prepared. It's interesting that uh, every single religion you'll study, going back in paganism, has the concept of a sacrificial system. And so it's like as man left uh, the truth that was initially gave, given, and perverted it in many ways. For example, sometimes they offered up their own children and things like that. The concept that you had to sacrifice to appease a creator that you've offended was in the minds of man everywhere you found them on the face of the earth. Uh, it's interesting, I was reading something the other day about the Greek thinking at the time of Jesus that uh, the Greeks actually thought in terms of a sacrifice to appease you know, the creator. And they looked at themselves as having offended the creator. And of course they had a misconception of the creator. But yet you can see that this basic truth that got started way back there with Cain and Abel and as man spread over the earth, he retained that truth of a sacrifice needed to appease the Creator. Well, what this does now is it prepares the minds of people for the good news when Jesus would actually come. Their mind had already been prepared in that way. Okay, now, in, the, uh, in Leviticus, there are a few things to look at because of the concept we did on fellowship. Uh, turn over to chapter 4. And you might want to mark these, at least mentally or whatnot, in your mind. I think it's good to use this uh, when you deal with other Christians concerning the concept of fellowship. Uh, chapter 4, uh, Nancy, would you read that uh, through verse 3? The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he was bring to the Lord a young bull without effect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Okay, now look at that. If you sin unintentionally, you do what's forbidden in any of the Lord's. If, even if the anointed priest sins, then he brings a guilt offering. The point is the recognition that there would be times when people would unintentionally sin, and then there was the sacrifice that could be offered. Now come on over to uh, verse 13. Uh, Tim, read that uh, 13 and 14 in Leviticus 4. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty. <coughs> Excuse me. When they become aware of the sin they have committed, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of the meeting. All right, now look at that. We get a little more information. He assumes that there will be time when the entire Israelite community will sin unintentionally. All right, now notice, 
it's, it's still sin, even though it's unintentional. But then in verse 14 he says, when they become aware of the sin, then they come along and bring the sacrifice. In other words, when you sin unintentionally, even though it's sin, you can't repent of it until you become aware of it. So here's the assumption there, that there would have to be a time when you become aware of it before you go ahead and, and make the thing right. Uh, Christy, read that verse uh, 22 and 23. When a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering a male goat without defect. Okay, there again. We've dealt with the priest, now the entire community. Then he says a leader. He assumes that there would be times when the leader would sin. Then again, you can't repent until you become aware of something. When he is made, notice also, there's no time limit. Uh, in other words, the time limit is, is between God and that individual. And uh, a lot of times today when I talk with individuals and about this thing of fellowship and people who are, who are Christians, but you believe are wrong on some particular point, and they always want to give them what they think is a reasonable amount of time to study and figure it out. Of course, always behind that, there's the assumption that I've got the truth. He's going to have to come to that conclusion. I don't believe you can put any time thing on there that uh, let God be the judge of, of that heart. And if a person, and here he's even a leader, he sins, he has to become aware of it. And when he becomes aware of it, then he can actually repent. Uh, Jack, would you read verse 27 and 28? If a member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he is guilty. When he is made aware of the sin he committed, he must bring as his offering for the sin he committed a female goat without defect. Okay, the same thing, a member of the community. Now, notice how he's hitting every party. He's hit the priest, he hit the entire congregation, he hit the leader. Now he said any individual member. Uh, if a member, it's, it's like to me that he's going overboard to make it clear, try to think of somebody he hasn't hit by the time you're through, that, that everybody will have times when they unintentionally sin, and that whenever they become, he makes it clear you don't whitewash it, I mean it's sin, but then when they become aware of it, then they go ahead and repent of that sin. And so in verse 28, when he's made aware of the sin, then he goes ahead. All right, now look over at verse uh, 3 of chapter 5, uh, same principle. If he touches human uncleanness, anything that would make him unclean, even though he is unaware of it, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. Okay, then he had to go ahead and offer the sacrifice. All right, now, think just of guilt. Do, even though you do something that's wrong, do you feel guilty or does your conscience bother you until you become aware of that it is wrong? It doesn't. And so you've done something wrong, but you feel no guilt, you feel no burden, your conscience doesn't bother you until you become aware it's wrong, then your conscience and the guilty feeling takes, takes its toe. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Do you have a clue as to why they're, um, they use different things for atonement for different groups? Like a leader you know, offers a male goat, whereas just a member of the community offers a female goat. I'm, okay, the, because I, the, there's a difference in position. <clears throat> there as far as a leader and a member of the community. For example, remember that uh, when, uh, <clears throat> when Jesus was uh, born, that his parents offered two turtle doves, a sacrifice, okay, under the law, that when the, when the child was born, to redeem the firstborn, you would offer a male goat 
a ram. You know, it was to be a male without blemish. But if you could not afford that, then you could offer two turtle doves. All right. Then if you could not afford the two turtle doves, then you could offer flour or grain offering. And so when his parents offer the two turtle doves, it lets us know that they were not well-to-do, but they were not in abject poverty either, that they at least had something. And so it required of them in keeping with what they actually had. And that's all I can see on that is that the, the leader itself would have more and there was more required there on, on his behalf. So you think the male goat would be have been more expensive or something? Yeah, it, definitely. That was the... I the, didn't know. The male... The, their male see, it, it had to be... Well, just like even today, we take uh, the top male and use it for a breeder. Well, see, they did the same thing. And see, it had to be their very best one without blemish and everything like that. And so it definitely had more, more value to it. But in the same way that we take the, the top male and then we'll use it as a, as a breeder and then we'll kill off the, the other ones. It's just like, a, uh, I guess they do that in all the animals. No, they'll keep their, what they consider their top male and then they'll castrate the rest. And, but then that, that bull, if I understand it correctly, like even today, wouldn't the bull be the most valuable, more valuable than the cattle or, or anything else? He would be the most valuable. And same thing in uh, racehorses. That male, uh, sometimes like one that wins a Kentucky Derby, will go for millions of dollars and they use him just for that reason. Well, my understanding is that they did the same thing. And you get a little bit of this with Jacob in a situation that happens there on the breeding. And so that was simply a more, more valuable animal. Okay, now on through that over here to, we'll just hit this concept, finish up tonight. Leviticus 10, uh, we've got Nadab and Abihu. Uh, let's see, Louise, read that 10 and uh, 1 through, did you read already, Jack? Mm -hmm. Okay, 1 through uh, 3, please. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. Okay, so this... Um this particular passage has been used any number of times uh, as an example in the Old Testament where you do something wrong, you break God's command, and, and zap, whammo, you know, he zaps you. And what we've already seen, though, is that God knew that sometimes priests would in ignorance sin. In other words, I'm saying that based on what we already know by the time we got here, we know that this has to be a premeditated, willful type thing that they did. Well, then we come on and look at the context and he's real strong. He tells Aaron and, and the other brothers not even to mourn for them. Then in verse 8 of the 10th chapter, the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. All right, so from the whole context, we see that they were drunk. And they were showing complete disdain and disrespect for God. And you just simply had willful sin by people that were totally disrespectful. And God used them as an example before the entire congregation. You have a similar thing in the New Testament when, uh, what is it, Aquila, Ananias, and Sapphira uh, lie. And God, well, we know God doesn't do that every time. 
But we're right, what are we? We're at the birth of the church. And God is trying to establish that the apostles are guided by the Holy Spirit and they are speaking for Him. Well, obviously, if they can lie and get away with it, uh, then that would throw that into question. And so He used them as an example. I think Nadab and Abihu in the same vein. This didn't happen every time. But right now, God is establishing that Moses is given these ordinances from God. It's not off the top of Moses' head. And so then when they treat it with disdain and total disrespect and go in, then God kills them. And that really impresses the minds of all the people that, hey, this just isn't from Moses, this is, this is from God. And we're to treat this in a, whole, in a holy way. But it's a total misuse of that to take that passage and uh, in the way that I had heard it used over the years, in the way I was initially taught it, is to take that passage out of its context, and then when you're referring to somebody in another group who you fully acknowledge is sincere in everything, but yet here they are doing some things that, that you believe is wrong. You know. So we go back over here with Nadab and Abihu, when they do such and such, they're offering strange fire before God, everybody, there's just no way that they stand any chance of, and I don't know how many of them I've heard preached into hell over the years. For uh, no matter how sincere they are, no matter that they repented, no matter that they believe in the Lord, no matter that they give or anything, you know, they still, whether it's they've got the piano or, or whatever it is that they've got, you know, we, we've got them zapped. Well, that is an absolute rape of that passage. It just simply does not say that in its context. And really the context is one where we have a merciful God who gives these laws for the good of people and in giving the laws goes out of his way to make it clear that he understands that there will be time when people through ignorance sin against him and that when they become aware of it they, they can offer sacrifice and then he takes two priests that get drunk and are totally disrespectful and irreverent and takes their life as an example. So that's an example of how God deals with people that are willfully irreverent and dishonest and all before him but not to be used in the way that it has been. Okay, now, let's pause there at the 10th chapter, but because this passage sums up what we've covered there, let's turn over to Numbers 15. Okay. Uh, Starting with verse 22, uh, Barbara, you want to start reading, and then just read three or so on each until we finish it up through the 31st verse. Now, if you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to you through him, from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come, and if this is done unintentionally, without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, along with its prescribed grain offering and drink offering, and a male goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community, and they will be forgiven, for it was not intentional, and they have brought to the Lord for the wrong an offering made by fire and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the aliens living among them will be forgiven because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. But if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a year old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. 
And when atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether he is a native-born Israelite or an alien. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. Because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, that person must surely be cut off. His, his guilt remains on him. Okay, so perfect summation of what we've covered. Again, he goes through that, that for unintentional sins, when they became aware that it was a sacrifice, but then the key, verse 30, 31, anyone who sins defiantly blasphemes the Lord, and then you must, that person must be cut off. In other words, this is where God breaks fellowship, is when you have willful, premeditated sin that a person refuses to repent of. All right, now, to give some of the verses that teach the same thing in the New Testament, uh, John 15, 22, Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to you, you would have an excuse for your sin. But now there is no excuse. And then we have uh, James 4, and verse 17, To him that knows to do right, and does it not, to him it is sin. And then Hebrews 10, and verse 26, If you continue to willfully sin, there remaineth no more sacrifice for your sins. On the other hand, there's 1 John 1, where he says that, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. In other words, there's sin while you're walking in the light, but you're cleansed of that. In the fifth chapter of 1 John, he said, if you see your brother sinning a sin that is not unto death, then to pray for him, and, God, and he could be forgiven. If it's a sin unto death, then don't pray for him. God wouldn't forgive. So John speaks of a sin that is not unto death, and then a sin that is unto death. And the only sin that's spoken of as unto death is willful, premeditated sin that a person refuses, refuses to repent of in that sense. In other words, don't go out here and pray for God to forgive somebody that's willfully sinning because he's just not going to do it. On the other hand, if, if, if you know this person is sincere and he loves the Lord and, and that uh, his sin is in ignorance, pray on his behalf and pray for God's providential care and, and things of that nature. But suffice it to say that all the way through, there is a definite distinction between sins that are in ignorance or unwillful or sins that are willful and defiant. And it seems to me, again, looking at that 30 and 31, when we talk about breaking fellowship with Christians today, I believe you break fellowship when a person is engaged in continual willful sin that he knows and understands and refuses to repent of it, whether it's an adulterous relationship or or somebody that's dishonest with this business, or whatever it may be. But that's that was the point of the breaking of fellowship. Any uh, any comments anybody have over what we've covered? Let's see. We got through uh, uh, Leviticus 10, and let me see here how many. Is... Let's go ahead for next time and finish up. Leviticus. Okay, we'll go ahead and finish up Leviticus.